When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who, when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. Hello, my friends. I'm Jared Halverson, and this is Unshaken. And I'm so thrilled that you'd come back and join me for some more time in the scriptures today. Last week, we studied 3rd Nephi chapter 11, which I hope meant as much to you as it did to me, to be able to see the Savior descend among the Nephites and begin his ministry here. But that's all that chapter 11 was, the beginning of his ministry. Starting today and going for the next few weeks, we'll be able to learn from the Savior as he teaches the Nephite multitudes. But I hope that we'll see these things through the lens of chapter 11. As we study the remainder of his ministry, keep in mind the priorities that he established in that very first chapter. Coming unto Christ and truly coming to know him, making covenants with him, following the doctrine of Christ, and doing so all the while without any disputation or contention toward others. From there we go to what we call the Sermon at the Temple which is a repeat here among the Nephites of what Jesus taught the Jews back in the New Testament time, what we call the Sermon on the Mount, which is found in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. Now, some people have a concern that there's repetition here, and yet as a teacher, I find myself repeating myself often. I'm sure my students would give me an amen hallelujah for that. Well, at least an amen, maybe not the hallelujah. There are just certain things that as a teacher, I know that my students need whether it's first period or fourth period, whether it's a daytime class full of college undergraduates or a nighttime class for working professionals. I don't mind repeating myself when, number one, it's a different audience, and number two, it's the same truths that will help everyone come home. Now, I get it. There are those in the world who are skeptical about the Book of Mormon when they see what they find in the New Testament repeated almost word for word here in the Book of Mormon. In fact, that's a subset of people who are just concerned about the Book of Mormon at all. The fact that additional scripture at all exists is a concern. But remember back in 2 Nephi 29, when Nephi gives that prophecy that there will be those who say, oh, a Bible, a Bible, we have a Bible, we don't need any other Bible. We've got all that we need. Now, if you look at verse 8 in that chapter, you'll see a principle that applies not just to the big issues of Bible and Book of Mormon, but to the more specific issues of Sermon at the Temple and Sermon on the Mount. He says this, Wherefore murmur ye? What are you complaining about? Because that ye shall receive more of my word, too much of a good thing? Know ye not that the testimony of two nations is a witness unto you that I am God, that I remember one nation like unto another? Wherefore I speak the same words unto one nation like unto another. And when the two nations shall run together, the testimony of the two nations shall run together also. This is like Ezekiel's prophecy. Those two sticks becoming one in our hand. The Book of Mormon is not meant to contradict the Bible or to counteract its great influence. These are companion scripture. As I used to say to my evangelical friends in the South, the Book of Mormon is the best friend the Bible ever had. The Book of Mormon is biblical backup. It's canonical clarification. It is second witness of the first principles of the gospel. What's there to murmur about in all of that? But rereading that verse in 2 Nephi 29, 
I think it's interesting that, yes, there are two separate nations giving two witnesses from separate prophets and separate civilizations. But did you catch that phrase? I speak the same words unto one nation like unto another. Of course, the historical portion of the Book of Mormon will be different from the historical portion of the Bible. But the doctrine, the theology, those are voices that harmonize beautifully. And in some places, it's not harmony at all. It's everyone joining on the melody, a single set of notes that needs to be crystal clear in the hearer's mind. This sermon of Jesus, one of the most important things that he ever taught, indeed one of the most famous ever since, was something that both Nephites and Jews needed to understand. So no complaint on my end. And to those skeptics who read 3 Nephi 12, 13, 14 and compare it to Matthew 5, 6, and 7 and see it casting doubt upon Joseph's ability to translate, there are some insights in these chapters that shed some incredible light, in my opinion, on what the translation process really was like for Joseph Smith and what our own experience translating scriptures into our own lives is supposed to be for you and me. And secondly, I would say to those skeptics, before you focus all your attention on the similarities between the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon at the Temple, and those similarities are the majority of the text, don't lose sight of the differences. Because the differences between the Sermon at the Temple and the Sermon on the Mount are incredible. So please take those into consideration, as we'll do today. In some ways I would say, I'll explain the similarities if you'll explain the differences. As I see it, both similarities and differences are amazing. Now, let's step back for a second and see the big picture of the Sermon at the Temple. 12, 13, and 14 weren't split up into chapters when it was first given. This was one long discourse from the Savior. But I love the way they're divided now, because I think each chapter gives us something else to think about. So let me help you see the end from the beginning, and then we'll dive in. Chapter 12 ends with that very famous verse about being perfect. Don't worry, we'll talk about what that means. But by the end of chapter 12, or Matthew chapter 5, we're supposed to be perfect if we've been following things right. Well, shouldn't the sermon be done then? I mean, I made it. I've achieved perfection. But it's not done. There's still chapter 6 and 7 of Matthew, or still chapter 13 and 14 of 3 Nephi. And what are those about? Post-perfection. Well, having achieved perfection by the end of 3 Nephi 12, now in chapter 13, it's time to perfect your motives. Why did you become perfect? How do you feel about your perfection? There's still perfection of motives that needs to take place. And then chapter 14, or Matthew chapter 7, now it's time to quit judging those who are still back somewhere in chapter 12 or 13. So become perfect, perfect your motives, and then perfect your perspective on those that are still perfecting themselves somewhere along the way. Honestly, I don't think we ever fully complete any of those chapters. But if we think about it in terms of that order of things, I think we'll see the process unfold that the Savior has in mind for each of us. So let's start in chapter 12. But let's start with the end in mind. Chapter 12, verse 48. The way it's said in Matthew is simply, Be ye therefore perfect. In the third Nephi version, slightly different. It starts, Therefore, I would that ye should be perfect. Now, so far that doesn't seem that different, but it does soften things a little bit from simply the abruptness of, Be therefore perfect. There's a person behind this call to perfection. And it's the person who is trying to make it all possible. I would that you should be perfect. I would want this for you. I would help you obtain it. And then 
instead of simply saying, just like Heavenly Father, he includes himself this time, even as I or your Father who is in heaven is perfect. I think that inclusion speaks volumes about what perfection means for Christ. He could have said sinless all throughout his life, but he never claims perfection until now. And what has happened between the first time he says this phrase to the Jews and now when he says it to the Nephites? His own resurrection. This is post-resurrection perfection, which seems to be the only kind available. Years and years ago, President Russell M. Nelson gave a talk called Perfection Pending, and he used this verse as a key in his text. He even got into the Greek of the word perfect, this idea of teleos, as in telescope, as in something so far away. It's that distant perfection that we're after. But don't force that expectation upon yourself in an impatient way. Yes, you can see the stars through your telescope, but you can't force them to get any closer to you. Be patient. Perfection will come. It came for Jesus post-resurrection. This is not meant as an excuse to stop striving. Rather, a reassurance that you're doing better than you think. As long as you are progressing, however slowly, toward that all-important and yet very distant goal. In some ways, this life isn't meant to reach the destination. It's simply to establish your trajectory and your momentum. If your trajectory is set and your momentum is moving you forward, then that will continue on eternally. And keep in mind what I've taught previously, that if you take this thought, be therefore perfect as a command from God, and so it is, couple it with 1 Nephi 3.7, that God gives no commandments unto the children of men, save he prepares a way. Okay, fine, I'll take your word then. You want me to be perfect? Well, you said you'd provide a way. So are you going to help me get there? Well, couple that verse to John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus says. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. The only way you'll ever achieve perfection is by me. Or, one more verse to add to the mix, Moroni 10, 32, and 33. It's not just about becoming perfect. It's about becoming perfect in Christ. Or as he says in that passage, perfected in Christ. Perfected, that E-D, is one of the most comforting past participles in all the grammar of God. So if this is how chapter 12 of 3 Nephi ends, then let's lead up to it. Let's establish some trajectory and momentum on the way. And that's exactly what he does throughout the remainder of this chapter. Read everything leading up to it with that end in mind. Now chapter 12 in 3 Nephi starts differently than chapter 5 in Matthew does. In the Matthew version, it's a matter of Jesus going up the mountain and getting set, setting himself ready to teach. In chapter 12, on the other hand, you see him shifting from what he's just done in chapter 11 to what he's about to do in chapter 12. It starts with this transition phrase, shifting from the words that he's taught to Nephi and the 12 that he's given power and authority to baptize to, now to addressing the multitude. But notice what he says to the multitude. Blessed are ye, if ye shall give heed unto the words of these twelve whom I have chosen. From the very beginning, he is vindicating the prophets, as he always has. Again, first thing he said after saying, Behold, I am Jesus Christ. Prophets are on such a lower level than the Lord, and yet the Lord always seems to validate them, confirm them, raise them in the eyes of the multitude, so that they know that they have God's authority. In fact, notice how he describes them there. The twelve whom I have chosen, 
So they're here because of my will, not because of their own. Remember Jesus clarified that to his 12 back in the old world too, when he kind of puts them in their place in John 15 and says, you didn't choose me. I chose you. You didn't campaign for this. You didn't climb some ecclesiastical ladder. This isn't about your position. This is about my permission. I have chosen them. I have chosen them from among you to minister unto you, to be your servants. Notice those phrases. I chose them from among you. They're no different. They're no better. They're no higher. Remember when Jesus first ascended. Where's Nephi? Not apart from them. Definitely not above them. He's among them. And Jesus had to call him out. That's always how Jesus chooses his leaders. From among his followers. He chooses them to minister. Not merely to administer. All those meetings and things are necessary. But they're necessary evils compared to the work of ministry to which they're called. And that ministry is a call to servitude, to be your servants. Let him that is chief among you be servant of all. And nobody personifies that better than Jesus Christ. Unto them I have given power. So I am the source of that. They don't have it themselves. They have to be plugged into the power source. But they have power that they may baptize you with water. And after you are baptized with water, behold, I will baptize you with fire and with the Holy Ghost. There are some things that they can do. There are other things that only I can. Keep them straight. Having commended to them the men, he then commends to them their message and ministry. Therefore, blessed are ye if ye shall believe in me, because of their words, and be baptized, that's their ministry, after ye have seen me and know that I am. And then he adds in in verse 2, And again, more blessed are they who shall believe in your words, because ye shall testify that ye have seen me and that ye know that I am. We've seen that idea of one group is blessed and another group is more blessed several times already in the Book of Mormon, and we'll see it again even later in today's material. And in some ways it has to do with levels of belief versus knowledge. Now we would probably assume that knowledge is the higher level. And yet, do you remember what we saw back in Alma 32? That there are those who are compelled to be humble, and then there are those who choose to be humble. And choice is always higher than compulsion, as far as blessedness is concerned. Well, we also talked back then about the difference between being compelled to believe versus choosing to believe, and which is higher. Knowledge is compulsion to believe. You know it. There's no escape. There's no choice in the matter. It's just kind of a a no-duh. But when it comes to choosing to believe in the face of other possibilities, doubt that is, That is a higher level of faith. It's almost like wherever there's a higher risk, there's a higher reward. Knowledge doesn't require much risk at all. It's obvious. It's undeniable. But faith, because it isn't as obvious, isn't as undeniable, there's risk there and reward there. So take it back to 3 Nephi. What's Jesus saying? I'm here with you. Believing in my words shouldn't be difficult. You know exactly who I am. You've thrust your hands in my side. You've felt the marks in my hands and feet. You know. There's no faith here because there isn't any room for it. Because there's no doubt. So you who believe in me, you who choose to be baptized, awesome. You are blessed. But those who believe in your words, they're now one step removed from me. The embodiment of perfect knowledge. They're one step removed from proof. And that belief is a level of faith that surpasses even yours. As a historian, I get the importance of primary documents. 
primary sources. Secondary sources are always one step removed. They're not quite as powerful. Well, what the Lord is asking is that we trust a secondary source, namely the testimony of someone else who believes. I'm not saying this to try to avoid gaining your own first-hand witness, but our witness is typically through the witness of others. What did Paul say? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. We typically hear others first on our way to, eventually, perfection pending, hearing God for ourselves. So going back to verse 2, more blessed are they who shall believe in your words, a secondary source, because you shall testify that you've seen me, primary source. You know that I am. See how he's putting these side by side? In your case, it's seeing me. In their case, it will be hearing you. In your case, it's knowing me. In their case, it's believing you. Knowledge versus belief. And the next phrase continues to explain it. Yea, blessed are they who shall believe in your words and come down into the depths of humility. It will require humility to trust someone else's witness as we wait to receive a direct one for ourselves. You understand why it would be more blessed then? Because it requires more faith and more humility than the direct confirmation, the one that's undeniable because it's so patently clear. But with that greater faith and greater humility, your belief will then become baptism, and then I will visit you with fire and with the Holy Ghost, and ye shall receive a remission of your sins. Now, so far, that's all third Nephi. There's not a hint of that in Matthew chapter 5. Beautiful difference as we lead into now what is very similar. Verses 3 through 12 are what we call the Beatitudes. And the order is the same here as it is in the Sermon on the Mount. Most of the language is identical, but some of the differences are beautiful. And I believe the Lord is describing more of a succession rather than just a smattering of good principles to live. But this is a cumulative process of growth. Peter talks about this when he talks about becoming partakers of the divine nature. And that's what we're after here too, right? Becoming as perfect as Christ is, that's becoming a partaker of the divine nature. But the way Peter describes it is cumulative. It's a staircase approach. He says, start with this and then add that. And then to this, add that. And to this, add that. And so on. Well, if we read the Beatitudes in a similar succession, a cumulative crescendo to Christ, notice what he's asking. Verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit who come unto me, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That phrase, who come unto me, is not in Matthew. Matthew's version is simply, if you're poor, you're blessed because you'll get the kingdom. doesn't seem like we have to do anything there. But as clarified here in 3 Nephi, you're blessed, you poor in spirit, if you come unto me. That's how you find in me the kingdom of heaven. You see, this doesn't suggest someone who's just waiting for the blessings to come. This is a person who recognizes what they lack. Secondly, recognizes where they can find what they lack, and they go to find it. I believe that what I'm looking for is there. I believe they'll offer it to me when I come. What kind of belief is that? That's faith. In this case, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He has everything you're missing. You who are poor in spirit, come unto me. Have faith in me. Believe that I have what you lack and that I'm willing to give it to you. On that foundation of faith then, verse 4, Blessed are all they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now is he simply talking about sorrow and relief? 
or in a more spiritual context, is there something else he's hinting at? Mourning, a blessed kind of mourning. I wonder if this has to do with what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians about godly sorrow. That's the kind of mourning that brings a mighty change in us. Remember Jesus already said, as the voice spoke through the darkness in chapter 8, 9, and 10, that I'm now asking that you bring a broken heart and a contrite spirit. Come and mourn over your sins so that I can forgive you. I wonder if verse 4 is hinting at repentance. To go from faith in 3 to repentance, blessed mourning, comfort in forgiveness. And then in verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now that one's almost funny in, in a sad sort of way. If we take the world's view of what an inheritance of the earth will be. Again, without our understanding that the earth will receive its paradisiacal glory, that's 10th article of faith, that the earth becomes the celestial kingdom, if that's the case, then I would like to inherit that. But through the perspective that most people have of the earth being destroyed by fire at the coming of Christ, and that's it, I mean, is that all the earth's going to be? Some kind of orbiting charcoal briquette? In that case, no wonder it's promised to the meek. They're the only ones that would accept it without complaint. They'd be like, uh, no, I, I, I like charcoal. Thanks. It, it looks great. Is that what he's getting at? I don't think so. But if inheriting the earth is celestial kingdom and it is promised to the meek. Now, meekness is not weakness. We should know that clearly from Moses, who was described as the most meek man on the earth in his day. He was anything but weak. He was strong, in fact, but knew where the power source was. To borrow language we saw from chapter 11 last time, he submitted to all the will of his Father, just as Jesus did. That is meekness. I wonder if there's a suggestion of covenant making and covenant keeping in verse 5. This meekness realizing, I will do all that I am asked, anything that I'm asked, to plug into that power source. Baptism obviously comes to my mind quickly if I'm thinking about crescendo from faith to repentance to baptism, because then in verse 6, it hints at the fourth part of the fourth article of faith, which is the gift of the Holy Ghost. So at least as I read it, I see meekness couched in covenant making and keeping. Even the condescension of Christ, which was one of his ultimate acts of meekness, was illustrated in Nephi's visions not only with the birth of Christ, which makes condescension obvious, but the baptism of Christ. That was the other illustration of Christ's condescension. That was the other illustration of his meekness. So from faith to repentance to covenants like baptism, then verse 6, Blessed are all they who do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. That's where Matthew ends. But 3 Nephi adds the clarifying phrase, with the Holy Ghost. Again, that's one reason I see the fourth article of faith in those first four steps of the Beatitudes. When you hunger and when you thirst, it's the bread of life, it's the living water that fills us. And what does it fill us with? The Holy Ghost. Remember that incredible life-changing conversation between Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well? He'd already sent the apostles in to get food. And when they came back, ready to provide for him, what did he say? I'm not hungry. I have meat to eat that ye know not of. I have been filled with the Holy Ghost. Verse 7 then, since we don't finish with the fourth article of faith, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. 
Now, in and of itself, that teaches the law of the harvest. We get what we give. We'll see that taught again in chapter 14. But in terms of this succession of principles, we've now begun to develop Christ-like attributes. Not just the meekness that makes us realize we can't do this on our own. We have to make a covenant with Christ to receive his power. But even after making this covenant and receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost, am I becoming more and more like Jesus? In verse 8, Blessed are all the pure in heart, for they shall see God. It does seem that purity, holiness, is a higher level than what we've seen to this point. We can be taking all the right steps and beginning to develop all the right attributes, but to arrive at purity, this is clean hands and a pure heart, not just the outward actions, clean hands, but the inward attitudes, pure heart. Then in verse 9, blessed are all the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. So far, these beatitudes can be largely lived in isolation. I can do most of these things on my own, develop most of these attributes in a monastery somewhere. In fact, what a better place to develop them. I don't have other people to frustrate me, to try my patience, to test my meekness, to, to push on my purity. But it's in the context of our relationships that makes all of these things difficult to obtain. We are one another's clinical material, as Elder Maxwell used to say rubbing off rough edges, knocking chips off of our shoulders, that friction in a family, for example. Can we become peacemakers through all of that? To me, peacemaking requires another person. So pulling off verses 3 through 8 on my own is laudable. It's impressive. But to do all that in the presence of others that are working on those beatitudes themselves, that's a whole other level. So to be a peacemaker, take all that you've done up to this point and now add your treatment of other people. Can you avoid friction with them, even if they're way back in verse 3 or 4, where you used to be? Verse 10 then needs to be seen together with verse 11, because they're very similar. Verse 10 is, Blessed are all they who are persecuted for my name's sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then 11 adds, Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. So opposition in both. But in 10, it's for my name's sake. And 11, it's for my sake. Now, again, that sounds very similar as well. But is there a slight difference between my name's sake and my sake? In the Matthew version, it's the first one is for righteousness' sake, and the second is for my sake. That makes the difference even clearer. If my name's sake is closer to righteousness' sake, it's like, well, it's for the church. I, I can't do that because it's against my religion. It's easy to kind of hide behind the church that way and make the church seem like the, the bad guy in all of this. So as I see it, I just notice a slight difference between those who are persecuted for Christ's name's sake the church of Jesus Christ, righteousness, as opposed to verse 11, it's for his sake. I just see him being more directly involved in verse 11. For me, are you loyal to me in a personal way? Do we have enough of a relationship with him directly, individually, personally, that we're willing to face anything for his sake? I'm doing this for Jesus. Call me what you will. I am a Christian. Fight anything you want, but I will stand up for the cause of Christ. I even see this hinted at in section 76 of the Doctrine and Covenants when it compares the terrestrial to the truly celestial. Terrestrial people are described as honorable. 
That seems to be people that are willing to stand up for Christ's name's sake, righteousness' sake, do the right thing, be honorable. But to go from terrestrial to celestial, celestial souls are not just honorable, they are valiant. And specifically, they are valiant in the testimony of Jesus. Now, if you haven't noticed, just like things seem to get harder and harder as they get higher and higher, there seems to be more and more opposition as well. Those first steps are difficult, but it seems to be us that are standing in our own way. By the time you hit verse 10, you're facing actual persecution. And then in 11, that persecution expands to include reviling, speaking evil against you. Falsely, by the way, it's important to realize. If they're speaking evil against us truly, then I guess we deserved it. But falsely is what we're after. And if that describes you, that's okay. Verse 12 reassures us that we're in good company. You shall have great joy and be exceeding glad, for great shall be your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets who were before you. Others have ascended the staircase of the Beatitudes as well. They overcame persecution, and so can we. Now, so far, so good. We've, we've completed the Beatitudes. We've climbed that staircase. Then, though, 13 to 16 helps us know that wasn't just about you. That was about everyone else. It's about setting an example to others. So in verse 13, he says we're the salt. And in verse 14 through 16, he tells us we're the light. Salt and light, beautiful symbols to represent what we're supposed to do for others. I mean, do you really think you've reached this altitude ascending the Beatitudes just for you? No, now you're at a place where you can invite others to ascend alongside. The way he describes salt in verse 13 the salt of the earth. If the salt shall lose its savor, wherewith shall the earth be salted? The salt shall be thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. Now we typically associate salt with adding flavor to our food. Sometimes we like that increase of flavor so much that we add a little too much. I'm looking at you, Mom. Anciently, more than just flavor, however, it was for preservation of food. You couldn't refrigerate your meat, so what would you do? You'd salt it. Salt is meant to bring out the good and to keep out the bad. It was often used in sacrifices in the Old Testament as a symbol of the covenant. Covenants bring out the good and keep out the bad. But if it's not doing that, if it's lost its savor, then that doesn't make it worthless. It can just no longer be used to season things. Now, literally, have you ever trodden salt underfoot? That verse didn't make much sense to me as a kid growing up in sunny Southern California. But once I moved to colder climates, I trod salt under my feet all the time during the winter. Isn't that what snow melt is? Just salt? Dirty, unseasonable, unsavory salt? And I love juxtaposing those two images. Do I want to be seasoning or snow melt? Either way, I suppose I can help people but I would much rather bring out the best in them rather than just try to keep them from falling through my life serving as their cautionary tale. Now, as much as I like salt as an image, I like light even better. So in verse 14 through 16, as he describes us as the light, what's he getting at? Think of C.S. Lewis's statement where he said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. Does that apply to us as light? Not just our own shining examples, but are we helping put everything else in the world in proper perspective? 
Now, notice what he says about being an example in this way. In fact, both in terms of salt and in terms of light. One thing that the third Nephi version adds that's not in Matthew, in verse 13, I give unto you to be the salt of the earth. And in 14, I give unto you to be the light. We are neither inherently salty nor inherently bright. Those are gifts that God gives us. We'll see that much more clearly later on in 3 Nephi. When the Lord clarifies, I'm the light that you are shining. Yours is merely reflected. You're the moon. I'm the sun. But I do want you to shine. Just realize that I'm giving you that opportunity. I'm putting you in places where you can illuminate. In verse 14, you're a city set on a hill, but I did the setting. I put you there. Now, anciently, why would cities be on hills? For protection, really. Now we're back to that idea of preservation with the salt. You're a city set on a hill because this is a place that is easier to defend. It's easier to keep bad things out. No wonder it's where we want to bring good things in. Or in verse 15, when it talks about a candle being put under a bushel. The problem with that, the bushel doesn't just hide the light, it extinguishes it. What keeps candles burning is that they are in open air and the oxygen feeds that flame. Are we letting our light so shine before the people around us, not just for their sake, but for our own? Cover that example and pretty soon you won't have much of an example to cover anymore. A testimony is found in the bearing of it, right? That's one way we keep the candle light aflame. At the end of 15, he adds that we put that light on a candlestick. We raise it even higher. No wonder in the book of Revelation chapter 1, the church is described as a candlestick. Not light itself, but something meant to hold up the light of Christ. And that light is given to all that are in the house. Now, if you'll forgive me for a quick field trip to the New Testament, it's fascinating to compare. Or we've been comparing 3 Nephi with Matthew. But to compare Matthew with Luke, they're both contemporaries with Jesus, trying to report on the same kinds of events that they're seeing. But the differences between those two accounts are remarkable, particularly in terms of the audience that they're trying to reach. Matthew was writing to Jews, to the house of Israel. He's constantly quoting Old Testament scripture, pointing out to them who would know their Old Testament that Jesus is fulfilling all of these prophecies that they're familiar with. Meanwhile, Luke is writing to Gentiles, to outsiders. More women are mentioned in the book of Luke than any other gospel more of the marginalized. It's only in Luke that he talks about a good Samaritan, for example, or has Jesus applauding lepers like Naaman, the Syrian, or widows like the widow of Zarephath, an outsider. If you're an insider, Matthew's your gospel. If you're an outsider, Luke is your gospel. And when those two men are reporting on whatever Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount, the way Matthew says it is, that light that you're all meant to be is for those who are in the house. Luke, meanwhile, when he describes that light, he says that we're supposed to shine, that they which enter in may see the light. Fascinating difference. Fitting, by the way, that the Nephite version, since this is a tribe of the house of Israel, would preserve that in the house kind of mentality. But there's a further difference in 3 Nephi, even as compared to the Matthew Sermon on the Mount version, that I absolutely love. It hit me for the first time, in fact, what, 22 years ago, when I first started teaching seminary. I was just student teaching. I was just hoping I'd be good enough that they'd let me keep teaching the gospel. And I was assigned for five days 
to a junior high ninth grade seminary class. And I got lucky, blessed I would say, to be able to teach these chapters in 3rd Nephi to them. I guess the Lord knew I couldn't hit, so he was throwing me an underhand wiffle ball. It's like, can you at least do Christ's ministry among the Nephites? I'm not asking Isaiah chapters. Okay, can you at least do this? Well, I was studying these chapters in preparation for my lesson, and I had Matthew 5 in one hand and 3rd Nephi 12 in the other, and I was trying to compare the two. And this next insight was one that has blessed me ever since, because most of my teaching career, other than eight years in the South, has been spent in Utah. Now, I'm a Southern Californian. I grew up as an outsider, the Gentile, right? I was the Luke version, not the Matthew. And that experience, other than teaching in the MTC, was my first time teaching Utahns. Now, even before we get into what I learned, I am not a Utah Mormon hater. Some of the strongest Latter-day Saints I've ever met were born and raised in Utah, surrounded by people of their faith who also opposed them in their faith. No wonder they turned out so strong. Yes, sadly, there are some Utah Mormons that are simply here riding the wave of culture, just like there were plenty of cultural Christians that I met in the South. But in the midst of those cultural Christians, there were covenant Christians that stood out in incredible ways. And the same thing is true here in Utah. In fact, that's the insight that amazed me. Notice the change here. And in fact, you can probably guess it once you hear it for yourself. Because these verses are so famous from the Sermon on the Mount, fill in the blank mentally. Behold, ye are the light of, and what would you say? You'd say ye are the light of the world. Well, you just quoted Matthew. Or how about this? Let your light so shine before, fill in the blank, and what would you say? You'd say, let your light so shine before men, which is again, quoting Matthew. But look at 3rd Nephi. And what does Jesus say to the assembled Nephites at the land bountiful? I give unto you to be the light of this people, not the world. And then in verse 16, let your light so shine before this people, not men. For the same reason that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Again, differentiating between your candlestick and his light, or your moon and his sun, they may be your works, but it's the Father's glory that we're after. Whole new twist on work and glory, right? But notice the intended audience. This people. You Nephites, you're not the light of the world. The world doesn't know about you yet. You can't let your light shine before men. Because no men know about you. But you can let your light shine right here. Before this people. Now, this is why this was such an important thing for me to learn as I began teaching Latter-day Saints in a Latter-day Saint environment. Because who was this people? In fact, perhaps a better question is, who wasn't this people? What happened in 3 Nephi 8, 9, 10? All that destruction, the cataclysmic events that took place at the time of the crucifixion. The wicked were gone. Who was left? The more righteous. We saw this last week. Yes, they still have things to repent of, but you were preserved because you were more righteous than they. You're the good guys. And what happens when a bunch of the good guys get together and live together? Sometimes they stop being quite so good, at least in terms of not quite so exemplary, because they don't feel like their examples are necessary anymore. 
Why let my light shine when everyone else has lights of their own? Wouldn't that just be showing off? It's just not needed here. So let's all go on the dimmer switch a bit so that we don't blind each other. Our lights, after all, aren't as necessary here. Well, think again. Because the Lord is saying to these righteous saints there assembled in bountiful church headquarters now at the temple, let it shine. Crank it up. Shine it right here. Give those with light all around you permission to let theirs shine brilliantly as well. You know how the military and hunters have these heat-seeking goggles? Well, imagine if there were light-seeking goggles, spiritually speaking. And I've sometimes wondered, having grown up in L.A. and spent eight years raising my kids in Tennessee, it seems in places where Latter-day Saints are a tiny minority that if you were to look at the world that way, there would be general darkness with an occasional pinpoint of brilliant light. Someone letting their light so shine before men. Someone courageously choosing to be the light of the world. And if I trained those same goggles on the Mormon corridor, I wonder what I would see. It would be bright, don't get me wrong. There's so many good people here. But I wonder, would it be more of a general glow instead of brilliant pinpoints of light? Can you imagine the illumination these candles would provide if they were fully on the candlestick among this people instead of behind bushels since everyone else here has candles of their own? Can you imagine the brilliance, the protection we could offer the world from this city on a hill if we chose not to hide our lights from one another? I do intend this lesson for everyone wherever you might be around the world, but particularly for you brothers and sisters, my fellow Latter-day Saints, who find themselves in Latter-day Saint heavy areas. Please, please shine here. I need your light. We need each other. Imagine the difference we could make if we let our light shine before this people. That was the first lesson I ever taught a group of Utah Latter-day Saints 22 years ago, and I have been trying to teach it here ever since. Now, having crescendoed up to Christ through the Beatitudes, and then turning ourselves loose on the world that needs that example as salt and light in those next four or five verses, Starting in 17, we'll see what Jesus is trying to accomplish through the rest of this incredible chapter. And it all has to do with raising the bar, lifting us to a higher level of living. Now, Jesus recognizes there's some concern among his audience because going higher means leaving behind the earlier elevation. And if you're used to that, if you've always tried to live at that level, you might get a little altitude sickness as you climb to higher heights. There is a concern among them. Well, what about the law of Moses? So he reassures them in verse 17, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Huge difference there. Not one jot and not one tittle have passed away from the law. In me, it's all been fulfilled. Now, the key difference here is between destroying something and fulfilling something. When you take down the scaffolding after you've built the building, have you destroyed the scaffolding? No, it simply fulfilled its purpose. 
if you needed a stepping stool to climb to a higher place, but now you're going to stay on that level forever, you don't need the stepping stool anymore. And so the law that was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, if it was added so that we could get up to a higher level of living, then once you've surpassed it, it's no longer needed. It has served its purpose. Its purpose has been fulfilled, not destroyed. In some ways, this is all about means and ends. Once the ends have been reached, then the means have served their purpose. The means were accomplished. They've been fulfilled. We no longer have to continue in those particular means. We've arrived. He'll say this again at the end of this chapter, when you look at verse 46 and 47, for example. In fact, he'll say the same thing in chapter 15 after this whole sermon is done among the Nephites, but it'll take us a while to get there. In chapter 12, verse 46 and 47, Therefore those things which were of old time, which were under the law, in me are all fulfilled. Old things are done away. All things have become new. So what he starts in 17, he ends in 47. These are bookends to all the stuff that comes in between. By the way, that second bookend is much more clear in 3 Nephi than ever it is in Matthew. By the way, while we're on this topic of old things being fulfilled because they've got us to the point of the new, there's an important verse in section 10 of the Doctrine and Covenants that has this idea of destroying versus fulfilling in it as well. But it's much more important for us as a modern group of readers, especially as we see those of other faiths. Or for you who have converted to the church at some point in your life, how you view your old life and your old faith. And I hope you view it with a sense of gratitude rather than a sense of rejection, a sense of fulfillment rather than a sense of destruction. This is section 10, verses 52 through 54. He says, Now behold, according to their faith in their prayers, will I bring this part of my gospel to the knowledge of my people. This is what this restoration is all about. I'm bringing this part of my gospel, the part that's been missing from the fullness. Behold, I do not bring it to destroy that which they have received, but to build it up. So restored truth isn't meant to destroy or deny or contradict previously held truth. It's meant to build it up, to fulfill its purposes. That part was built in the right direction. It was built correctly. It's aiming. It's just not high enough. We ran out of bricks. Well, here comes the rest. And these bricks aren't to replace the old ones. They are to build upon them. That's what he means in verse 53 when he says, For this cause have I said, If this generation harden not their hearts, I will establish my church among them. Well, what would harden their hearts against additional truth? Part of it, perhaps, being so convinced that what they had before was its fullness. No wonder they're saying we don't want any more or need any more. No wonder they're saying a Bible, a Bible, we don't need any more Bible. And worst of all, perhaps we're the ones that are convincing them to harden their hearts because of the way we approach the part that they've already received. Maybe they're rejecting part two because we're rejecting part one. Do we treat them or look at them or look at their truth in such a way that they start worrying that you've come to destroy what I have? We've heard this from practically every modern day prophet from Joseph Smith to today. As they reassure people, we are not here to destroy or deny anything you have. We're here to say, hold on to all the truth you possess and simply come and see if we can add any more. You sense Jesus doing the same thing? I'm not here to destroy the law. I'm here to fulfill it. Hold on to all of its purposes. The ends have not changed. In fact, the means 
have served their purpose. You should be grateful. We should be grateful for all you have. That's back in 2 Nephi 29 as well. You who say, oh, we have a Bible, that's all we need. Nephi pushes back and says, do you have any idea who brought it to you? Do you recognize the labors and pains and travails of the Jews to bring forth salvation unto you? Do you give them any thought or thanks for that? No. You Christians holding to your Bible have largely rejected the house of Israel that went before, that provided you that foundation upon which you continued to build. This is a caution against cold supersessionism that says, oh, we're Christians. Who needs the Jews? And I think, honestly, that's one of the beautiful contributions that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints makes through the restored gospel. Because it doesn't just restore New Testament Christianity. It restores Old Testament Judaism right along with it. When I was at Divinity School and somebody once asked, where do you Mormons fit in all this stuff? I joked and I said, well, if Judaism and Christianity got married and had a child, it would be Mormonism. They were like, what? Yes, I still had to explain some more things. But that's kind of the truth of it. It's the whole edifice. Subterranean Old Testament foundations along with everything superstructure from the new. I am grateful for truth that was preserved through Judaism and Catholicism and Protestantism. The restored gospel did not have to start from scratch. The gospel does not destroy the law. It fulfills it. And the restored gospel and the restored church does not destroy other churches. It fulfills their purposes, their aims, their hopes. That's why I'm so passionate about interfaith work. We're in this thing together. It's what the Lord seems to suggest in DNC 10. In 54, I do not say this to destroy my church. I say this to build up my church. It's an echo of what he said earlier in 52. I'm not here to destroy the gospel. I'm here to build it up. I'm not here to destroy the church. I'm here to build it up. It's like, wait, wait, destroy the church? I thought you were restoring it because it was already destroyed. Well, no, it was just missing some things. So 55, therefore, whosoever belongeth to my church, all you who've always been a part of it, the part of it that has always existed. No need to fear. You'll still inherit the kingdom of God. If you've been building towards completion, you're still my church, no matter how many bricks you've been missing. Like I taught a couple of weeks ago about the three shelves and revelation yet to come. We're missing bricks too. We just know how they'll come through prophets and apostles like always. The church is in a constant state of construction it's perfection pending for us all. And in the meantime, we're here to fulfill, not to destroy. I hope we can come across in that way as we're speaking to people of other faiths and as we're looking back at previous faiths of our own if we've joined the church. Now, one other important thing before we move forward. This, what I've just explained, is looking backwards. We're not here to destroy. We're here to fulfill. But we can actually do a better job looking forward into the future as well. And that's exactly what the Nephites were trying to accomplish. In 2 Nephi chapter 25, after Nephi has emerged from the Isaiah chapters, it's right after that all-important verse about talking of Christ and rejoicing in Christ and preaching of Christ and prophesying of Christ. Remember he said, why so emphatic upon Jesus? So that our children may know to what source they may look for a remission of their sins. Well, again, why so emphatic? I want you to look at this so you know what source to look for. And usually I'm only emphatic about where to keep your eyes if I'm worried about where your eyes might wander. Well, do people growing up as the house of Israel 
Where might your eyes naturally be pulled as far as the source for your remission of sins? Well, the law. These outward performances and ordinances, all this stuff we're supposed to be doing all the time, as we would say in our day, the programs and practices of the church. So what do they do? Part, constantly focusing on the future, talking of Christ and his coming. But then in 27, we speak concerning the law, that other thing, yes, we have to live it, we have to talk about it. But we speak concerning the law that our children may know the deadness of the law. Whoa, that's a little bit scary. Can you imagine if you talked about the church and all of its deadness? Or the programs of the church and their deadness? Or the deadness of this commandment? Or the deadness of your mission? The deadness of all these things? Whoa, that's scary. But not if you focus on its comparative deadness. It's only dead as compared to Christ. The life that comes in him. That's their focus. And they, by knowing the deadness of the law, may look forward unto that life which is in Christ and know for what end the law was given. See the difference between means and ends here? And after the law is fulfilled in Christ, this is 600 years in advance, and they're already planning for it. After the law is fulfilled in Christ, that they need not harden their hearts against him when the law ought to be done away. You see how proactive their preparation was? Obviously, it wasn't fully successful. Jesus is still trying to reassure them here in 3 Nephi. But that's not Nephi's fault. From the very beginning, kids, this is the law we're going to live. But they're means, not ends. All this work is meant to help us reconcile our will to God. But it's not to earn our salvation. That will only come as a gift of grace from Christ. So work on these things. Live this law. Practice these programs. But always keep in mind their comparative deadness, their lack of life compared to the life that comes in Christ. These things will someday be fulfilled. And I don't want that to feel like destruction. Dismantling the scaffolding should feel like a glorious thing. Right now, downtown Salt Lake, as the Salt Lake Temple is being retrofitted for earthquake safety, scaffolding is necessary. But I look forward to the day when it no longer is, when its purpose has not been destroyed, but rather fulfilled. The church itself will come down like so much scaffolding, many modern apostles have told us. That shouldn't freak us out, even as faithful members of that church will simply realize it's fulfilled its purpose. It has fully established what has always been the ultimate intention of its existence creating the eternal family, ready collectively to return to God. Now that's definitely going to take a lot of raising of the bar. So let's see how he does it with specific commandments in mind. Now he gets to that in 21. We still have 19 and 20 to get there. And these two verses are completely different from the Matthew version that we're used to. In Matthew, it's where he says, you better do and teach these things. Otherwise, you're no better than the scribes and Pharisees. But here, notice what he emphasizes. I've given you the law and the commandments of my Father, that ye shall believe in me, and that ye shall repent of your sins, and come unto me with a broken heart and a contrite spirit. He's trying to help them understand the purpose of what he's given them before. That's why he says at the end of the verse, Behold, ye have the commandments before you, and the law is fulfilled. Therefore, now that it's in your rearview mirror, having served its purpose, come unto me and be saved. For verily I say unto you, that except ye shall keep my commandments, which I have commanded you at this time, 
ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. All that's gone before, I hope it has helped you develop righteous reflexes. Wax on, wax off, right? That you, it's naturally now to obey, to submit your will to the will of the Father, as I have done. Nothing helps you succeed in the game like lots and lots of practice. And that's what the law of Moses has done. As he said in 19, it was all to help you develop belief in me and repent of your sins and come unto me with a broken heart and a contrite spirit. That's what the law of sacrifice, for example, intended. Every whit of those ordinances and performances, all of that animal sacrifice pointing forward to that great and last sacrifice, infinite, eternal. This is all Alma 34 from Amulek. And if putting the animal on the altar, representing, as Elder Maxwell said, us putting the animal within us on the altar and letting it be consumed, if that's not repentance, what is? If sacrificing things doesn't suggest a broken heart and a contrite spirit, what does? Preseason is over. I hope you're ready for game time. Every lesson learned hopefully has served its purpose. So let's raise the bar. Starting in 21. And in 21, and again in 27, and 31, and 33, and 38, and 43. Six times in this chapter. He uses phrases that shift us from the past to the present. He says things like, Ye have heard that it hath been said by them of old time. Or, It is written by them of old time. Or, It hath been written. Or, It is written. So, looking back at the law. And then in the following verse, every single time, 22, 28, 32, 34, 39, 44, he then says, But I say unto you, or, but verily, verily, I say unto you. See what he's doing each of the six times? This is what you're used to. Now I'm asking you to do this. This was preparation. Now let's go on to the next level. I actually think it's interesting that there were six examples that he uses. Because you'd kind of expect seven, right? If we're thinking about the symbolism of numbers, that seven is that more full and complete whole, the earth itself, until it was very good. Well, I think in some ways he's left that seventh spot open for each of us to figure out what is it in my life that needs to be raised to a higher level. I'll give you six. You give me the seventh. It's all aimed at becoming perfect even as I and your Father in heaven are perfect. So what lack ye yet? That's the one you need to put in position number seven. Well, position number one is in verse 21, and it has to do with murder or the law against it. According to what's written before, thou shalt not kill. We're all familiar with that one. Whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment of God. But I say unto you, so you see how he's replacing old with new? Whosoever is angry with his brother shall be in danger of his judgment. Oh, so the old law was simply forbidding murder. The new law is forbidding anger. Now, you see what Jesus is doing? See how those two are inherently connected? We typically don't murder anyone if we haven't passed through the anger stage along the way. So there is a certain sense of, if I can control what leads to that, then we'll never get there. Actually, God has been really good at creating two lines of defense since Adam and Eve themselves. Remember when the serpent asks Eve, did God really say not to eat that fruit? Eve's response is fascinating because it establishes two lines. It draws two lines in the sand. Eve says, yes, God commanded us not to partake of the fruit. In fact, she adds, he said, don't even touch it. Now, that's an interesting one. Would she have fallen if she just kind of, uh, 
touch the fruit really quick? I don't think so. So why that preliminary prohibition? Because if you never cross line number one, you'll never even approach line number two. And so these people who have been raised with this law that says, don't fall off the cliff, are now being said, um, can you actually step back away from the edge? You're far safer back here. So again, he's raising the bar. Or if you want to shift the metaphor a little bit, picture a freeway with five lanes in it. And have you ever been in a freeway that is under construction? And so they're putting cones out or barrels, and you've got to start narrowing the lanes. They usually give you plenty of time to begin merging, right? Because eventually there's going to be a bottleneck that everyone's going to have to pass through. Well, early on, you can be in any of those five lanes. You can be weaving through traffic, not a problem. But as the freeway starts to narrow, you've got to merge or you'll be forced off the road. You'll be hitting cones. Now, if you think about it, life in general, you're allowed to live telestially on the earth. And during mortality, we can kind of weave in and out of how we're living our lives. Days that we're telestial and days that we're celestial and days that we're somewhere in between. But when Christ returns and the millennium begins, guess what? We've had to merge into the middle. No more telestial life available to us. Hopefully we've learned to drive pretty well and we've merged in the meantime. And then at the end of the millennium, the earth itself becomes the celestial kingdom. There's more cones on the edge of the freeway and we're all being redirected into that middle lane. Where, by the way, we could have been driving all along. I found it helpful for myself to see these things in the context of telestial, terrestrial, and celestial levels of living. You see, T. Lester would take any of these Ten Commandments and say, I don't have to live that. I don't intend to. And so they do commit the sin itself. Terrestrial, you've merged a bit, at least would say, okay, fine, I'll obey that law. I won't kill. I won't commit adultery. I won't do those things. I will live the law because I have to. But celestial is so much further away from, from being tempted to fall in those directions. I'm not going to jump from lane three to lane five. I'm not going to kill somebody. I don't even get angry. I love this kind of lifestyle. I've progressed from the won't do to the have to to the love to. It's who I am. This is the lane I want to stay in. I don't have to worry about merging. In fact, once I'm here, I can help create some space so that other people can merge as well. I'm always grateful when somebody does that for me. So again, this first example, murder. The telestial says, I'm not going to live that law. I will kill. The terrestrial says, fine, I'll live that law. I won't kill. The celestial says, I'm so far away from killing that now it's anger that's my enemy. I am overcoming that. Now, by the way, this is another great place to compare Third Nephi with Matthew because the Matthew version adds a little loophole, a little caveat. He says, whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause. Well, Third Nephi removes that. Sorry. The Matthew version justified me getting angry. If it was legitimate cause. The Third Nephi version, there doesn't seem to be a legitimate cause at all. One other difference I thought was interesting. The Matthew says, whosoever is angry with his brother, without a cause, shall be in danger of the judgment. And here it's, shall be in danger of his judgment. Now the antecedent of that pronoun would be the brother that you were angry with. And I think that's really interesting. Matthew seems to leave us with, well, I don't want God to judge me for, be, for getting angry. But here it's, I don't even want my brother to judge me. 
This seems more of the horizontal relationship rather than the vertical one, which shifts the conversation from me being right or wrong or justified or not, and it turns it more into, well, what's the perception of the other person? Now all of a sudden it's, are they justified in feeling any anger from me? Are they justified in their perception of me as I engage in this relationship? That takes things to a higher level as well. As I need to be concerned, what will this person's perception of me be based on the way I treat them? What will they take away from this exchange? I might feel totally justified. I might feel innocently indignant over this. But if I've allowed my anger to bring in any level of disputation or contention, which comes from the adversary we just learned in chapter 11, then what will their judgment of me be? What will their judgment of the experience or the exchange be? I may not be in danger of God's judgment at all in terms of what I'm defending or the position that I'm taking, but will their judgment be such that they won't be open to later reconciliation or further clarification of my position? I tried to make this my rule as a missionary. I didn't always keep it, but I tried. And that was to never leave the other person with a bad taste in their mouth. Because I don't know what's going to change with time. If they'll soften and open their hearts to some later missionary. I feel the same way with my interfaith experiences. Never leave them with a bad taste in their mouth. I do the same as I'm working with people one-on-one -on -one who are in the middle of faith crisis. Even as I'm trying to defend the faith or explain principles of the gospel or church history issues or whatever, I do my absolute best to never let emotion get the best of me to the point that there is some kind of anger that the other person might feel because then I'm in danger of their judgment. Not the Lord's. That's a different issue. In fact, that seems to be suggested a little later on. Keep reading in 22. He gives us three examples. First, angry with your brother you're in danger of his judgment. Second, you call him Raka, you'll be in danger of the council. And then third, thou fool, you'll be in danger of hellfire. Now Raka, most people interpret that to mean fool as well, or empty-headed, which basically seems like the same thing as the last one. So I'm less concerned about my part of things. I'm more concerned about their part of things or the outcome of the exchange. Again, I might be doing the same thing. I was angry, I said raka, I said fool. Maybe that's synonymous. But on the one hand, there's his judgment. Second level, it's the council's judgment. Third, it's God's judgment and I'm in danger of hellfire. In each case, what am I in danger of? And that escalates with each iteration. That seems to be the nature of anger or sin in general also. I may not be getting worse with time, although that often happens, but the continued actions, the consequences seem to increase with time. I need to learn to nip this in the bud. And how do I do that? The Lord explains in 23 through 26, we just saw the problem, here now is the solution. Therefore, if ye shall come unto me, or shall desire to come unto me, and rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee, then go thy way unto thy brother, and first be reconciled to him. Then come unto me with full purpose of heart, and I will receive you. Now that's a little different than the Matthew version. Matthew starts with, if you bring your gift to the altar. Now that's more of an external action. Here I love the internal perspective. If you come unto me or desire to come unto me. 
You see, it's not just that anger will cheapen your outward actions. It will affect your inner attitudes. So don't just clean it up and overcome it before you go do the outward things. Before you do the inward things, we've got to work on this. And this isn't just you having something against your brother. It's your brother having something against you. Again, you might feel completely innocent, completely justified. I haven't done anything wrong. So what's there to keep me from coming to the altar? Or what's there to keep me from coming unto Christ? Well, it's not that easy. What might other people have against me? Again, it was his judgment at the start that I need to be concerned about. So work that out and work it out first. First, be reconciled horizontally. Then you can come and connect with me vertically. Because then there won't be anything in your heart to stand in the way. You'll be able to come with full purpose of heart. That's missing from the Matthew version too. This is living the second great commandment on the way to living the first great commandment. Those two are inseparably connected. But for certain personality types, the type that are zealot, the shiblons of the world, go back and rewatch the video for Alma 38. People that are so zealous in keeping their first commandment commitments, their vertical connection to heaven, please know that you have to be living the second great commandment on the way. The first may come first in order of priority, perhaps, but the second is first in terms of order here, as if to say you'll never fully master the first commandment until you've kept the second along the way. In 25, he gives us this advice. Agree with thine adversary quickly while thou art in the way with him, lest at any time he shall get thee, and thou shalt be cast into prison. Now that's ironic advice. Agree with thine adversary quickly. What? He's the one in the wrong. Why do you think he's my adversary? Because I'm the guy that's always in the right. And you know, you might actually be. You might be right. So why agree with him? Well, because if he's your adversary, at least if that's his perception, his judgment of you has been adversarial, then you're never going to convince him of your rightness. That is, you'll never convince him to agree with you on those things that really matter. If you don't agree with him along the way. Now, I'm not saying, oh, you just agree with everything and say, oh, yes, you're right when in some things they're wrong. But within any position, there tends to be a nugget of truth. That's why I'm so passionate about this concept of proving contraries, that I may be passionate about this side, but there's always some particle of truth on the opposite position that helps keep mine in balance. If I'm passionate about grace, I need to have room for works. If I'm passionate about justice, I've got to have room for mercy. Usually what makes somebody my adversary is that they hold to the opposite extreme of the extreme that I'm holding on to. And so if I can agree with my adversary quickly, if I can sort through their position and see, ah, there is an element of truth that I do agree with. It's the other half of my truth. And I can agree with that. You see, the beauty of proving contraries is I can validate their position. I can come over and look at things through their perspective and say, you know, I agree with you on this. Not the whole thing, but we can get to that later. I agree with you. And once they feel understood, listened to, agreed with, validated. Once they know that we're trying to see things from their perspective, they may be more willing to see things from ours. I'm amazed at how often that happens as I'm working with somebody one-on-one. -on -one. I remember as a young missionary 25 years ago, we didn't have Preach My Gospel yet. We used the old missionary guide. And it was famous for having these examples to learn from. And there would be 
less effective and more effective examples. You could see how to do it, and it was really nice because you could see how not to do it. And often as missionaries, it's like, oh yes, the mas eficaz, the more effective. That's how I'm doing it now. The menos eficaz, the less effective. Oh yeah, that's how I did it when I was a greenie. Because I was so zealous. And I, there's no way I'm going to agree with my adversary. See, there were some specific examples where you're teaching something, and the investigator in these examples would say something, no, I, I, this is my belief whether it was the Trinity or infant baptism or any of those kinds of things. And in these examples that you'd practice with your companion, they'd give you some possibilities and there'd always be one that was like, oh no, that's false. We believe in this. There'd be another one that would say something along the lines of, oh, that's a great point that you're making. And I remember as a greeny missionary, always being adamant that they got it wrong when they'd say it was that second example that was better of the two. I'm like, no, 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 you've left them with this falsehood. You just got to come out with the truth and let them have it. No, Jesus had a better way. Agree with thine adversary quickly while thou art in the way with him. Otherwise, you'll be cast into prison. At least a prison of his perception. And he's not going to let you out of it. That's the suggestion in verse 26. If you're thrown into that prison, thou shalt by no means come out thence until thou hast paid the uttermost senine. And while ye are in prison... Can you pay even one C9? Verily, verily, I say unto you, nay. See, that's the hard part. If I'm thrown into debtor's prison, how on earth am I going to be able to work off my debt? If I'm in the prison of your perception, then how on earth am I going to be able to make things right? You won't even let me get a word in edgewise anymore. You see how that works? This is tricky. This is interpersonal relationships with adversarial positioning. And the moment I'm in the prison of their perception of me, then I'm going to have a very hard time convincing them that I deserve to come free. Whereas if I can agree with them early on, quickly, those parts of their position that I can agree with. Maybe I'm being too vague. Let me give you an example. I remember the last area in my mission. Again, I'd outgrown the greeny menos eficaz and was becoming a more effective missionary myself. And there was this family that was so strong in their faith. They were wonderful, wonderful Catholics. And I remember we were teaching the apostasy, which never goes over well as you're teaching Catholics, for good reason. And I remember this Catholic father saying, no, the Pope has authority and always has. San Pedro, St. Peter was the first Pope and it's been continued, passed down ever since. And I could sense my companion, who was much younger than I was, kind of bracing himself for the fight. And I just kind of relaxed everything and leaned back in my chair and and I said, hermano, muchísimas gracias por lo que tú dijiste. Thank you so much for what you just said. It's one of the things I love most about my Catholic brothers and sisters. I could sense my companion now kind of, what? what? What are you saying? And I said, because you understand the importance of authority. That is so refreshing to me. Because most people I know that aren't Latter-day Saints or Catholics don't care much about authority at all. Remember, the Protestant Reformation was all about rejecting Catholicism and its priesthood to form what they called a priesthood of all believers, which is basically a way of saying no need for priesthood. We've got the Bible. This will be our authority and nothing else needed. No wonder we also aim towards grace and away from works because there's no authority for ordinances. Anyway, that's a conversation for another day. But this conversation with this Catholic family, it diffused the situation. We were no longer adversaries. I came to his side and said, Amen, brother. Authority is absolutely essential. The conversation continued, of course, as we made the point that we're going to have to figure out where the authority lays. 
if there was an apostasy or not, if authority was maintained throughout apostolic succession, or if the links in the chain were broken at some point and needed to be reforged. But either way, we agree that authority is absolutely essential. It's awesome. And it was amazing just how much softer it was. I was never in prison to them, the prison of their perception, because I agreed with that adversary. He was never my adversary, but I agreed with him quickly while we were in the way, before we parted ways over an issue that had more common ground than perhaps either party wanted to admit early on. Instead of attacking Trinitarianism, I'm so grateful that people believe in the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. So do I. First article of faith. We can talk about the composition of the Trinity versus the Godhead later, but can we agree on that? I don't have to slam someone for infant baptism. I can say, I'm so grateful that you consider baptism so essential that you don't want anyone to miss out on that blessing. You understand? Whatever it might be in our efforts to avoid anger, we're so far away now from murder. I, I can't even remember we were talking about that. And again, Jesus wants to get us so far away from that telestial level or even the terrestrial level of living. I'm so focused on saying in the middle of my celestial lane that I'm not worried about the cones on the edge of the freeway. Verse 27, he now shifts to the next order of business, from murder to adultery. Behold, it is written by them of old time that thou shalt not commit adultery. So that's the old. That's the telestial terrestrial divide. You either commit adultery, telestial, or you refrain from committing adultery, terrestrial. 28, but I say unto you, so let's raise the bar, move into the celestial center, that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery already in his heart. So the old law was don't commit adultery. The new law is don't look with lust. Again, a huge step removed. If I don't cross the first line, I'll never cross the second. I did notice one extremely minor difference between this version and the Matthew version. At the end of 28, when it says, he hath committed adultery already in his heart, Matthew says, he hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. So I was pondering, does that make a difference to omit the with her part? First, it hit me that adultery is a sin against far more than it's a sin with. That's really what separates fornication from adultery, right? The same act has been committed, but fornication is more simply an act with someone else that's wrong. Whereas adultery is that same act that does happen to be with someone else, but it's inherently against the person that you've covenanted to be faithful to. The real sin of adultery, what makes it such a damning sin, has nothing to do with whoever you happen to be committing the sin with. It's the fact that it is a sin against a covenantly committed partner. That this is a sin not only against love, but against loyalty. And I think it's interesting also that when it comes to lust, lust has very little to do with its object and very much to do with the person themselves that is guilty of that lust. That it's not about committing adultery with anyone, especially since the actual act of adultery has not been committed. Lust alone doesn't have to involve another person at all. Lust is a sin that can be committed independent of any other person. It's an internal struggle, something that the individual has to deal with. Whatever the object of that lust might be is practically interchangeable. No wonder it's eliminated from this entirely. 
So on one level, adultery is not about the new person. It's more about the old person, a sin against, not a sin with. And secondly, it's not about either person. It's about you. You are the person at the core of the element that we're discussing here. Now, just like in our previous example, the murder slash anger one, he didn't just leave it with raising the bar. He explained a little bit of how to do that, you know, reconciling with your brother and agreeing with your adversary and so on. Same thing here. But in this case, the third Nephi version is completely different from the Matthew version. After raising the bar from adultery to lust, in the Matthew version, Jesus says, if your right eye offends thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. Better to go to heaven with one eye than to hell with two. If your right hand offends thee, cut it off. Better to go with, to heaven with one hand than to hell with two. Drastic measures. But as we say about desperate times, maybe it's those desperate measures that are required. If I have a problem with lust, again, keep it in context, then pluck out the eye. Then I can't use that eye to look at things I shouldn't be looking at. I used to joke with my students, imagine if somebody took that advice literally and somebody came to church with an eye patch on, or probably more likely two eye patches, and they're trying to feel their way into the room and you're like, whoa, what happened to you? And imagine if they said, well, I used to have a problem with pornography. I don't anymore. And again, we discussed that you can't have a problem with pornography if you've literally removed the possibility of it. But the longer I thought about that, I realized, wait a minute, can that person still have a problem with pornography? Can lust still be eating at them, even if they can't act it out in terms of visibly looking at something? After all, isn't that exactly what this raising of the bar is all about? You haven't technically acted out in adultery. You've just done it internally instead. Well, to the idea of pornography, if I've only removed the outward, I can't see anymore, the eyes no longer function, can I still have struggles within? Can I still be painting inappropriate pictures on the screen of the mind? So that was the first step in this realization, that simply removing the opportunity doesn't necessarily eliminate the attitude. And that's where the third Nephi version comes in. Uh, this is amazing to me. 29 and 30, he doesn't talk about pulling out eyes or cutting off hands. He simply says in 29, Behold, I give unto you a commandment that ye suffer none of these things to enter into your heart. You see that that goes even deeper than the eye or the hand. Verse 30, For it is better that ye should deny yourselves of these things, wherein ye will take up your cross, than that ye should be cast into hell. So there's still that element of better heaven than hell. But there it was focused on eliminating outward action. And here it's focused on eliminating inner attitude. Denying yourself. Taking up the cross. The JST of Matthew 16, by the way, repeats those same ideas. That taking up the cross means denying yourself of all ungodliness and of every worldly lust. That's what the Lord is asking of us. Now here's where it gets interesting though. I've asked students in the past, which version is raising the bar higher? Obviously, they're both raising the bar. It used to be adultery on both. Now it's don't even look with lust. And how do you do that? The Jewish version is eliminate every outward possibility. And the Nevite version is eliminate the inner attitude that would move you in that direction, which is higher. And correctly, they always say, well, the Nevite version is higher. Again, first level, you can do anything you want as long as you don't commit the actual act of adultery. Next level, don't look with lust. 
The first was control the body. The second was control the eye. And the Jewish level leaves it there. The Nephite level, don't just avoid the eye. Avoid the heart. We're now several rem steps removed from that final action. We're up to the heart level. Now, when I was in high school, I high jumped. And I learned a very obvious principle. That the higher you raise the bar, the harder it is to clear it. That's kind of a no-brainer. And yet what's fascinating about these verses, that which one's higher, Matthew's version or 3rd Nephi's version? Well, the 3rd Nephi version is higher. Heart rather than just eye. But here's the irony. Which is harder? Harder to control the eye or harder to control the heart? Now, you'd think, well, it's harder to control the heart. Educating your desires, but not entirely. I mean, the initial goal is to eliminate adultery. The ultimate goal is to have a mighty change of heart. So we might as well be aiming for that body part to begin with. But think about it this way. Picture in your mind a cliff. Now, there's a plateau at the top, but it doesn't meet the cliff edge directly like a 90 degree. Instead, you have this plateau, and then it starts to gradually decline. And then you take that gradual slope, and then it meets a much steeper slope. And then that steep slope hits the, the straight up and down vertical drop-off. And you position someone at each of the three transition points. One at the top of the plateau where it starts to go down. A second where the gradual decline meets the steeper decline. And a third where the steep slope meets the straight up and down drop-off. And then you have this giant boulder at the top that's starting to rumble a little bit. It's a little unstable. And the goal is, don't let the boulder plummet down into the sea. Now, which of those three people will have the easiest time doing their job? The one right at the top? There's no momentum at all. It's fairly stable right there. And if I'll just kind of put a hand on it, I'll keep it from starting the downward descent. Now, the second person has a much more difficult time. There's some momentum. It slowly started to roll down the hill. But if I can plant my feet and anchor myself, then hopefully I can keep it from going any further. But if it has started rolling and now really picked up speed on the, the steeper decline, that poor soul that's right at the edge of the cliff, he has no hope at all of keeping that boulder from falling into the sea. Which of the three has the easiest time? The one at the very beginning. Up here, it's don't even let these things enter into your heart. Over here, it was, well, I guess you've been thinking about it a lot. It's become a desire. Just don't look at anything. Okay, I'll try. The third person, you've let it enter your heart and mind. You've begun acting upon it with your eye. The only thing keeping you from acting on it fully is your own self-control, which you've already given up a lot of. There is so much momentum to this lust that has begun lumbering down the hill that you are in danger of committing the act that you never intended to. Ironically, the easiest time to control lust is when the boulder first starts to rumble. In that moment, control your thoughts. Control your heart. Don't let it start to work its way in there, because the longer you think about it, the more likely you will be to act in some way. And once you are acting, then it only builds up speed. I'm grateful for the wisdom of the Lord in raising the bar in such a miraculous way that it actually makes it easier for us 
to clear the jump that matters. Deny the heart, deny the mind. And not only will you never have to pluck out an eye, but you'll never have to deny the flesh at a moment when it seems almost impossible to do so. Now his next instance of bar raising is verse 31 and 32. And this one has to do with divorce. 31, it hath been written that whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. Which I suppose is better than just putting away a wife for absolutely no reason at all. I guess the telestial level would be simply, yeah, eliminate relationships and, and break covenants, no problem at all. But this way, at least terrestrial, well, at least have a reason, okay? What 32 then does in raising the bar to the celestial level is saying that reason better be the ultimate reason. It's a high standard he sets in verse 32. Verily, verily, I say unto you that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery. And whoso shall marry her who is divorced, committeth adultery. Now, I know this is an incredibly sensitive subject because of the divorce rates that are prevalent across the world and prevalent even in the church. Historically, this is the reason that Catholicism has not permitted divorce at all. Now, if you want a good talk to read on this one, go back to Elder Dallin H. Oaks's talk on divorce, where he explains the rule and the exceptions to the rule, that there has to be a way out of marriages that are truly broken, broken beyond the point of repair. President James E. Faust once explained, what then might be just cause for breaking the covenants of marriage? Over a lifetime of dealing with human problems, I have struggled to understand what might be considered just cause for breaking of covenants. I confess I do not claim the wisdom or authority to definitively state what is just cause. Only the parties to the marriage can determine this. They must bear the responsibility for the train of consequences which inevitably follows if these covenants are not honored. In my opinion, just cause should be nothing less serious than a prolonged and apparently irredeemable relationship which is destructive of a person's dignity as a human being. Now, President Faust went on, at the same time, I have strong feelings about what is not provocation for breaking the sacred covenants of marriage. Surely it is not simply mental distress or personality differences or having grown apart or having fallen out of love. This is especially so where there are children. Now, I'm not here to wound delicate feelings and tender hearts. This is such a personal and difficult thing. You can sense President Faust struggling with that as well. I believe Bruce Armakonki once, in trying to explain these verses, let us know that this is a higher law. That's what this whole chapter is trying to do, right? Raise the bar. And that we're not yet living at that level. But I don't think that means that we just dismiss these verses. And I don't think that that's what Elder McConkey was implying. But there have been people throughout Christianity and within the restored gospel that have really wrestled with that verse and worried if I am divorced, am I committing adultery? If we got divorced for any reason short of adultery itself, then am I now an adulterer myself? And that's a difficult question to grapple with in these days of no-fault divorces. We've almost returned to the telestial level where we don't even really give bills of divorcement anymore. It's just, I'm done and I'm out. And we don't have to have very good reasons. That seems to be what the Lord is asking us to grapple with. What is the reason here? Telestial would be no reason, no fault divorce. Terrestrial would be, well, at least have some reason. 31 says, have a writing of divorcement. Celestial would say, you better have an incredibly good reason. Actually, the more I've thought about this verse, because I've wrestled with it 
on behalf of people that I know and love as well. I think the fact that we struggle with it is actually exactly what the Lord intended. That we, we wrestle with this thinking, wait a minute, turning myself into an adulterer just because I divorced for some lesser reason than that? I don't know if I can accept that. I, doesn't that seem like it's, it's blowing things out of proportion a little bit? Like, unless she or he was an adulterer, then their next spouse is one automatically? Eesh, that's, that seems to be blowing things out of proportion. It seems to be magnifying sins beyond what they really are. And I wonder if right then the Lord would say, stop it, exactly, exactly. You're accusing me of magnifying things beyond what they really are. You're trying to say that I'm making too big a deal of this. Well, in this case, it is a big deal. But think about yourself. Have you been guilty of magnifying things beyond their real proportions? We'll talk about motes and beams in the next chapter. But I wonder if we're starting to head in that direction that you took something relatively small and blew it up into something that would justify in your mind eliminating, ending, annihilating a relationship that was meant to be eternal. Can we not keep faults, weaknesses, imperfections in perspective? You want me to say, it's just divorce. Well, I'm asking you to say, it's just a difference of opinion, or it's just human friction that we need to work through and that we can. There seems to be almost this law of the harvest reciprocity, that whatever you measure out will be meted unto you again. There seems to be almost a spreading of this sin. You're judging them and condemning them as if they had committed adultery against you. Well, if we're following law of the harvest logic, you Turning them into an adulterer in your perspective is turning you into an adulterer in mine. Your raising of their sins beyond the pale is what's justifying me in treating you likewise. Judge not unrighteously that you be not judged. Again, we'll see that very shortly. He then shifts to the next bar raising. 33, again, it is written, here's the past, Thou shalt not forswear thyself, but shalt perform unto the Lord thine oaths. But verily, verily, I say unto you, swear not at all. And then he explains a few examples. Now, forswear doesn't mean swear. It means to break what you've sworn to uphold. It means to swear falsely. Perjury is what we call it. So the telestial level would be swear falsely. Break your contracts. A terrestrial level would be swear truly. Keep your contracts. But a celestial level would be, why do you need to swear at all? Who needs a contract that is notarized and full of legalese and printed in triplicate and recorded somewhere? Just be a person of your word. That's what he gets at when he says in verse 37, let your communication be yea, yea, nay, nay. Anything more than that is evil. In other words, if you say yes, mean yes. And if you say no, mean no. Do you really have to have a lawyer drafting some kind of contract that eliminates every possible loophole? Think about it this way. I remember on my mission seeing these gated communities with guards out front thinking, wow, that must be a really safe neighborhood with those guards. Then I thought, wait, the fact they need guards? Maybe this isn't a safe community after all. 
which is the safer neighborhood? The one with bars and gates or the one that doesn't need any? Which is the safer world? The one with enough stockpiled weapons to guarantee mutually assured destruction? Or the one where none of those weapons are needed because all the swords have been beaten into plowshares? Which is the more binding agreement? The notarized legalese triplicate or the handshake and the word of someone you know to be honest? That is the celestial center lane. The next one is from 38 to 42. He says, Behold, it is written, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Such a famous phrase, making the whole world blind and toothless, as others have said. But I say unto you, that ye shall not resist evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone sues you at the law and takes your coat, give him your cloak too. If they compel you to go a mile, go with him twain. Two miles, that is. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn thou not away. How do we treat each other? We look down at that idea of eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But that was actually moving things up a notch, up to the terrestrial level. The telestial level was, hey, somebody knocks out your eye, kill him. Somebody chips a tooth, destroy them. It was injustice on the telestial level. It was escalation instead of reciprocity. The terrestrial level was at least keeping things fair. There was justness there. Telestial, it's worse than what it should be. Terrestrial, it's exactly what it should be. But celestial, it's better than it should be. We go from injustice to justice to mercy, from escalation to reciprocity to generosity and charity. That's the world I want to live in. Notice, by the way, in verse 39, it's the right cheek that is smitten. Now, most people are right-handed. So how would a right hand hit a right cheek on the other person? Well, that's a tough uppercut, right? So what is probably happening if a right-handed person is hitting the right cheek of an adversary? This seems to be backhand. So is this an attack or is this an offense? A backhanded slap in the face. I don't think the Lord is saying to never defend yourself or your loved ones. You can picture Captain Moroni standing up for that, and rightly so. But if it's just someone hurt your feelings, someone offended you, somebody once went to Joseph Smith and asked for that kind of redress, and he simply said, and he's one that would know since he was constantly being attacked by others, he simply said, walk such things beneath your feet. Get over it, in other words. You give me a backhanded slap, I'm all right. I'm moving on. This is what Nephi described with those in the great and spacious building mocking and pointing the finger and him paying them no heed. Perhaps turning the other cheek is not just a matter of hit my other side, but I'm going to turn and walk away so that this does not escalate. In the other instances, Give them your cloak as well as your coat. Walk two miles, not just one. There's this sense of doing more than expected. A willingness rather than mere duty. In all of those instances, it's raising the bar. In both of those instances, we're increasing what we're doing for the other person. But think about what it's doing to that person as well. You see, this idea of reciprocity is such an ingrown, inherent social norm. 
Some scientists have even suggested that it's evolutionary, that within any organism or social group, I should say, reciprocity is something that just develops. That if someone is constantly on the lesser end, always taking and never giving, then eventually that one will be drummed out of the group. And so there's all kinds of social ways of making sure we stay on equal terms. It's like we understand inherently that the telestial level is insupportable. It's insufferable. We have to live on this terrestrial level. But that's the irony. If society itself wants to stay on this equal level and can't stand it when some other party is beneath them, well, what happens when the other party is above them? What if the other party, instead of giving them just the coat that was sued for, gives them their cloak as well? Then all of a sudden, what does this person feel? Uh Uh-oh, I'm on the lower level. If instead of just walking the mile that was required of you, you walk two, then what happens with us other person with their inborn sense of equality, of justice, of reciprocity? It invites them in the gentlest possible terms to live at a higher level themselves. Haven't you ever sensed that when somebody else does something nice for you and you want to reciprocate? Happens every Christmas, right? When it's like, oh no, they gave us something. We hadn't intended to give them anything. You know, neighborhood gifts and things are notorious for this. And all of a sudden it's like, do we have anything? Assuming that we can get beyond mere duty in that, but almost to be provoked to goodness. I think that's a beautiful thing because it spreads the desire to live up to that celestial level. I love what the Lord is doing here. Almost like he's using society's earlier progress up to the terrestrial level to prime the pump for continued progress up to the celestial. Just somebody has to start it. So let that be you. Just like waiting for justice to have its day requires some self-control on our part. Be the one that allows the celestial law to have its day. To live up to that high law and then let society follow. One last insight in verse 42 When it says, to him that would borrow of thee, don't turn them away. I love how soft that is. They haven't even asked yet. That was in the previous phrase. If they ask for it, give it to them. But if they would borrow, they see they can't even bring themselves to ask for it. But you kind of read the body language. You look at the needs. You see what some other person might need and might lack. And you just give it to them before they ask. We'll see Jesus doing that himself in chapter 17, acting on a perceived need even before a group can bring themselves to express it. The last one, well, his last one, remember our last one is whichever one we need to fill in number seven with, 43 to 45. Behold, it is written also, thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. Again, that's just justice, right? And it's better than it would have been It's better than hating your neighbor. Now you only hate people who deserve to be hated. But then again, you only love those that deserve to be loved. That points to the kind of publicanism that I mentioned in the Matthew version, only loving those that love you. But in verse 44, here's the higher law. Behold, I say unto you, love your enemies. Again, that's not just a love reaching across to its own level, but a love reaching down to a level below. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. Pray for them who despitefully use you and persecute you. And why do that? Why be that kind of person? 
Verse 45 says that ye may be the children of your Father who is in heaven. For he maketh his son, S-U-N, and in his case S-O-N as well, to rise on the evil and on the good. I love how he connects it back to his father. This is an example of like father, like son, and like daughter. That's how God is. God loves people who have put themselves into an adversarial position with him. He blesses those who curse him. He does good for those who hate him. He prays like the father of every prodigal son for anyone who's despitefully using and persecuting him or his other children. That's the way our loving father in heaven is. And if we want to be children of that father in heaven, then we have to treat each other in the same way. We have to love the undeserving. That is beyond the publican level. I joke with my wife about what we call parental publicanism. There are times I get frustrated with my children and I think, ah, I would be so much more patient with them if they would just obey because I'm so patient with obedient children. And then it hits me, oh yeah, that means I'm patient with kids that don't require any patience. Ooh, I'm so impressive as a parent. That is parental publicanism. If I only love the lovable, anybody can do that. You don't have to be a child of God with that divine inheritance, those generous genes. That's just easy. But to love your enemy, that's what the Lord is asking for. Now in 46 and 47, as we already discussed, there's the second half, the other bookend of this great discussion, the last 30 verses or so about raising the bar, having old laws fulfilled as new habits develop, old things being done away, all things becoming new. This is the new you. And whatever is lacking in that new you can be brought to a higher level of living as well. It can merge into that celestial center of the straight and narrow path. That's how we progress towards perfection. Verse 48 says, therefore, that's a conjunction that's supposed to connect what went before with what's going after. Therefore, with all of this past discussion in mind, that's what all that went before it is leading up to. This crescendo unto Christ through the Beatitudes. This becoming like Jesus inwardly so that we can then turn and become examples to others outwardly. Salt and light, even among this people. It explains this idea of fulfilling instead of destroying, of understanding the difference between means and ends, and when those means are served to continue on towards the ends. It explains all of these incredible examples of raising the bar and coming into the celestial center. Therefore, with all of that in mind, I would that ye should be perfect, just like I am. Better yet, just like Heavenly Father is. I know this is a lifelong process. It's a beyond-this-life process. But there will come a day where you can add your name to that list of being perfect. As Moroni clarifies, perfect in Christ. I'm grateful for his perfection, his perfect example, but also his perfect patience in my imperfections, his perfect love and perfect grace in leading me on. I am still one of those old things that needs to be done away, but I know that I can be made new in Christ, yea, all things new.